Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hey, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1401, entitled <laughs> B-Movie. <laughs> I know, we're pinching that off of an actual movie, but never mind. We could be the B-side because we are going to talk about Man vs. B today, amongst other mm-hmm. things. Our podcast title is Mr. Pod. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. Yeah, so many things we've been watching, and it's yes, it's crazy that the genre has never been more blossoming, more blooming than it has mm-hmm. been now. Which we better be careful about because it might attract bees, and that could be a difficulty. Wow, wow! Oh, just I should mention I've been watching the uh, second volume of Stranger Things. Same here. Yes, Ooh. I think. Very excited to return to that and chat a bit more once people have had a chance to catch up because I think I've got some thoughts. Mm. So, yes, let's reconvene on that down the line. Certainly getting dark, certainly getting violent. We were talking last week about that and Mm. one of the questions that you had, Megan, I remember was how do they get them all together again? Because we had at least three distinct different factions running around in terms of uh, the Scoobies and their parental units. Yes. (laughs) Parental units were in uh, the Soviet Union escaping from the Gulag. Then, of course, there was half the Scoobies in Hawkins or under it, and then the other Mm -hmm. half of the Scoobies were out in the desert in uh, Nevada near Las Vegas. Yeah. So how do we get them all back together? I've got some ideas about that. This is this is this is a guess, and I don't know if this. It's not really a spoiler because I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that possibly the Russian contingent could go through the portal that they've got there to come into the upside down near Hawkins. That would be a mm-hmm. quick way of doing it. I'm also guessing that maybe Eleven will reveal some powers that enable them to move quickly. Mm-hmm. through space and that would get the um the other bunch of uh, scoobs back to hawkins so that's my guess and we'll see how right we go <laughs> yeah i think that's part of the fun yeah. though i mean it's it's interesting they've got a lot of story threads a lot of characters but i i do trust them that they'll they'll handle it and we'll see we'll return and we'll see what happens mm. we'll discuss mm. but it's great anyway i think they've really done it for, well in that second half the, uh, it's fun to be excited about something dropping as well. Yeah. Like I think so often, you know, we've got so much at our fingertips that you take a bit for granted. I was really anticipating this and it was so exciting to like turn it on and see that intro. So, Oh, and the never-ending story karaoke that we played with with uh, <laughs> yeah. Susie and Dustin, from mm. that was actually on the soundtrack album. 
Oh, nice. Yeah, so really nice production on that too. So just okay. I, I just thought I'd mention that in case people just thought I just ripped it off of the, the internet <laughs> or something. It actually is on the soundtrack album. Wow. Official release as it should be because yeah. it was pretty fun. Mm. Uh-huh. All right, so moving along, this is not the stranger <laughs> things today. Let's talk about Ms. Marvel first. Yes. The seventh MCU television series, although there are actually more floating around from all of the other channel mm-hmm. but this is uh the big one that they've got based upon the comic book character and mm-hmm. she is kamala khan uh, she takes the title of ms marvel from an earlier incarnation of captain mm-hmm. marvel so because she's a big fangirl although the actual <laughs> actress who plays kamala is a fangirl for iron man yeah, I saw she was saying she loves the comics and she was so excited, but her Carol Danvers, she said, is Tony Stark. So we respect that on Zero G. Yeah, even if Tony would scratch his moustache at that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, right, Kamala is 16 years old. She lives in Jersey City, so she can see the towers of Manhattan and no doubt see the various superheroes flying across there. And she's always wanted to become a hero in her own right. And she and yeah. she does because in her own right yeah. means that she does fan stories. Yes. Yeah. Very cool art stuff, which I did find they taper off on some of that cool animated stuff as the series goes on, but that's okay. Iman Vellani plays Kamala and she looks like she was born to play this role. You know, yep. she has got all of the geek out, nerdy sort of aspects that you would expect for a, a fangirl living in Jersey City to have. I mean, she went to AvengerCon. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's what's so fun is that not only is it a fan, it's a real fan centric show. It's so cool how Jersey City is really featured. Like I think her cultural neighbourhood and, you know, her peers and the mosque that she goes to with her family and Jersey itself is just her home and time is such a really important part of the show. And I think it's really cool how that's all brought out. Mm, mm. Yeah. The other characters in it, well, there's her, one of her best friends who works in the uh, local sort of corner store, the Circle Q. That's uh, mm-hmm. Bruno Corelli played by Matt Lintz. And look, he has a bit of a crush on Kamala. You can tell that all the yeah. way through, but it's sort of like un- unrequited at this stage anyway. Uh, and he's incredibly loyal to Kamala. You can see mm. that he will do anything for her, basically. And he's tech support. He's a bit of a Tony Stark himself, I think. He loves to, you know, uh, tinker around with electronics and is a bit of an inventor. And I like that element. I'm like, mm, where's this going to go? We always need that in these, in the teen shows especially. You need, you know, you've got to have Willow. For Buffy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I like that they're each other's ally. Like I think that there's there's a nice element of friendship banding together and, yeah. I can just imagine Bruno saying, great, that makes me the Velma. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got an entire family for Kamala, an extended family that includes her parents, uh, her, her brother, her, her older brother, which is a whole mm. different kettle of fish as well, and mm. also uh, – her grandmother and yeah, her is it great grandmother as well? You know, yeah, so right. she, there's family. Her grandmother who doesn't live in the US, mm-hmm. 
Um, and then she does have some extended family, but I think they have a large found community in that area. I think it's mostly people from the Pakistani community mm. and um, the Muslim community that they're, that are really kind of her found family, I think. And, of course, once they actually get to Pakistan, it's like opens up to cousins. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the thing. I think family such a big theme here. Yeah. And then, yeah, we do get to go back and discover a bit more about Kamala's roots. I think that they've done really well with the family. The parent, mm. the parents are not perfect. This incredible mixture of loving kindness, of stern mm. parental disapproval. Yes, and, yeah, and fun as well. Like we find out that uh, Kamala's mum likes Bon Jovi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, honestly, I think. I mean, I think it's so interesting. I mean, I'm I. I wonder if people really relate to this in terms of the immigrant experience. But I think, um, you know, the strictness of the family, you can tell it's such a loving family. Like they have their own rules and their own way of doing things. But you can tell she just comes from this warm, loving home. Mm. And her mum has particular rules and boundaries. But, you know, you can tell she's very loved and they go to so much effort, like making the outfit for RevengeCon for her, which was just, she put so much effort into it. But it's just Kamala's torn between the American stuff and then, you know, still staying true. But, yeah, I think the family stuff just gets better as the show goes mm. on. Zenobia Shroff plays Maniba Khan, which is uh, Kamala's mother, and mm -hmm. we've got Mahan Kapoor playing Yusuf Khan. And these are just fully rounded dimensional characters in themselves. I mean, it's not their show, but it really yeah. feels like this is a whole unit of people. And they're not a yeah. broken family either. You know, mm. they have their, their spats and their factions. Un mm. Unlike so many other families in the superhero universes, they're not broken. There's, yeah. I think that's fascinating. There is tension. Yeah. And just as there yeah. is tension between Kamala and her mother, her mother has tension between her and her mother. And, yeah. and you know, when yeah. Kamala sees that, I think it actually adds to her understanding of, of her family. Mm. So there's this incredible yeah. story out there that I don't know if we've ever had fully explored in an MCU series before. No, I think they're definitely, the focus is firmly on, I mean, it's a bit like, you know, the, what was that one, the turning red and so on, where the focus is really on, you know, those different family cultures, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. And so as with so many other MCU shows uh luke cage i'm thinking of in particular mm -hmm. uh and of course um the shang chi movie and you know the, the, you could go on with this but the and of course um moon knight the yes mm -hmm. the mixed cultural experience is really really well portrayed and, yeah. and i think we get a, a whole lot out of this for this show in particular so i'm really yeah. happy with the way they've done that and, mm. and it, it's making the show for me in a way that um, I've not experienced before in Marvel to this this degree. Yeah. I'm, I'm really surprised by it. It's, <laughs> I, I, even though I've read all the Ms. Marvel comics and, and knew what to expect, I hadn't realised that they managed to imagine it so perfectly on screen. Right, right, so it's pretty true to comic. Yeah, yeah. Right down to, mm -hmm. right down to pages from the comic book appearing on street, streetscapes as uh, animated graffiti mm. as they go along. Well, that said, it's not slavish. Like they are, they change um, Ms. Marvel's powers in terms of their origin and their, and the way that they're depicted. They, they become more mm. like uh, energy constructs. 
mm. and actually changing her flesh. Like yeah. in the comics, she, when she embiggens, she actually stretches like Reed Richards right. in the Fantastic Four. Uh, mm. But in this, it's a it's a power construct, and there's a reason for that. It comes from um, it's channeled by bangles that she wears. She's not an inhuman in this, and if we may do a little bit of a, a spoiler here, she's another. I don't know, species or, or or group of creatures. Mythic, not mythical because, uh, yeah, but a different um, dimensional race. <laughs> yeah. And, I, you know, I think we're okay to spoil this now. She's a she's from a race that call themselves or perceived as Jin, D-J-I-N-N, not as Bruno says, what, Jin and Tonic? No, no, definitely not. And, you know, as as you often have in the MCU, this is explained by them coming from another dimension, the Noor dimension. So you've got a, that, that. They're very big on uh, interdimensional travel in the MCU because this is a source of energy. Mm. So perhaps the actual interface. And, of course, there's this entire plot about what's going on there. They're also known as the clandestines, which I think is a great term. Yeah. I actually find that much in, more interesting than the Eternals. Yeah, I was interested about how that links in with the Eternals, actually. And I did, because, you know, this is all setting up too for the film The Marvels, which will be out next year. And so they're obviously going to link the threads all in together. But I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, I'm starting to get that feeling, like what's the difference between a different dimension and a different multiverse? And I suppose the dimension exists on a different plane, whereas the multiverse is this a different version of this universe? A different timeline, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I started to get a bit muddled and then I was like, I'm just going to look at the pretty colours and the, the cool, because the powers look great. I think the way they've envisioned that and then executed the, her powers are really cool. But it did, I was, when they started talking dimensions and interdimensional travel and things leaking and doors opening, I was like, oh, but how does, what is, where does this fit with everything we've seen? This is, this confusing. is as confusing as, uh, as calling Iron Man suits marks or models. So they do that in, one yes. in the comics and one in the movies. Uh, mm. the, the thing is, I, 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 my understanding is that at the moment that a different mm-hmm. dimension exists within that particular universe. It's, gotcha. it's a, sub, yes. a subset of that universe, mm. whereas a multiverse one is a different timeline. Right. Yeah, that'll work for now. <laughs> until, we, <laughs> until we've proven otherwise you know so like like the negative zone would be part of our would be with our universe you know mm. sort of, it's, it's actually really practically there's hardly a difference is there when you think about it well this is what i'm wondering uh, but i guess the way they talk too like it's a whole different plane this other dimension it looks it's all purple it's all weird yeah. anyway yeah like we digress like the, but i'm curious yeah like the place where the dark hold um energy comes from you know it's yeah it, it's it's there anyway it's another place <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so we get lots of different factions showing up in Ms. Marvel now. We have the Red Daggers. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they're a bunch of vigilantes who are supposed to protect the people of Pakistan, at least from the clandestine and other unseen threats. Oh, Mm -hmm. and I don't know if you spotted it, and I had to go back and look at it myself. Uh, When Kamala's um, uh, great-grandmother finds the bangle, Yep. In the yep. in the tomb or temple, mm. on the floor of the temple, there's a design that we are familiar with. 
It's the Mandarin's Ten Rings. Interesting. Which, when you think about it, has got a very similar power set mm. to Kamala's bangle. So, you know, there could be literally wheels within wheels. I'm sure there's ties that we're not even fathoming that, you know, Kevin Feige has <laughs> sprinkled throughout all of these. How interesting. Okay, that's cool. I really like that they've brought in the other characters in here as well. You know, so we've got the clandestines and, and they're the major ones and the red daggers uh, and and Kamala's family and extended family. But then we also have the Department of Damage Control. Now, this has been building up in the MCU for a while. We've seen it in mm. in uh, different shorts and in, and in I think it was uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah, yeah. Damage Control was the department that took the Chitari tech away from Michael Keaton's character, the Vulture, and, mm. and set him spiralling off into a life of crime. Mm. Um, Damage Control in the comic books is a much more benign organisation. It literally is what it is. It's kind of a comic relief. and their, yeah, right. their function is literally what it says on the tin. They go around fixing up the damage created by superhero fights. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, okay. CSI cleanup, but, yeah. but also, yeah, a little bit more than that. Interesting. But, it, but they've tried to spin it to something more sinister here. Yes, exactly. It's Homeland Security of some sort. Mm. You know, so they're mm. after anyone who's enhanced. Yes. Yeah. So obviously they're on the trail of Kamala, who has been tagged as Nightlight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's yet to assume her own iconic costume, though. You can see the bits and pieces being assembled. She's given yeah. some a, a blue jacket by uh, the Red Daggers. And yeah. you know that's going to form part of her costume, which no doubt Bruno will help put together. And I think that's nice because didn't he give her the mask as well? And I think it's just, you know, she's. I think the idea is going to be she's collecting these different elements of her culture, family, friends, you know, the life she's made for herself in the States, and it'll all come together and she'll realise that, you know, she's a mixture of all these influences. I think that's what's going to happen. I think that the shift in the power set is a lot, is very tightly done because they, they formed it around her ethnicity. Mm. And it makes sense because they do that. In fact, you're sometimes thinking, why didn't they do that in the first place <laughs> in the comic books? Yeah. Oh, well, anyway. So, you know, I think this is a, an excellent series. They know exactly what they're doing. Great sense of place. You know, mm. I, I feel like I know Kamala's home now, how she yeah. how she escapes from it at night. The Yeah, and seeing some of the, the wedding was great, like, oh. you know, just having that cultural celebration i don't know it just felt so joyful and authentic mm. and and i like that there's those there's they've made space in the show for some of that stuff but i was also glad they started incorporating some action and getting the plot going because i was wondering where we were headed in the first couple of episodes yeah because we've only got six episodes to do this so you have to get into it and i love the fact that they had a a dance performance at, at yeah her brother's wedding <laughs> <laughs> and she got involved too, and suddenly it was cool. Everything exploded into color and light and sound, and then exploded again as the clandestines arrived. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and when they went to Karachi in Pakistan, the sense of place was mm. was really vivid. And I don't I don't have to reach very far to uh, say where I've last experienced that in Marvel. It was in Moon Knight in Cairo. 
yeah. you know, we would comment upon how well that was done. Except they never actually went and filmed in Karachi. It was filmed in Bangkok in Thailand. Wow. Okay. And they've dressed it up to be more, yeah. more um, Karachi-esque. Well, okay. You know, interesting. Political unrest and so on. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. and they used a lot of B-roll too, stock footage of, of Karachi. But it gave me a sense of, a real strong sense of place. And I felt like I was there and it almost felt like they'd filmed the entire series there. Yeah. Even yeah. though we'd spent three episodes in Jersey or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. was great. So yeah. I have no problems with this show, really. It's it's landing all its blows where it should do. The pacing is good. Yep. Uh, the music is great. They've really rolled into that um, into South Asian music, basically, and that's there's a mm. lot of tracks in the score that I just want to listen to by themselves because it's an education. Yeah. I think, too, I'm very glad that I was a bit worried at the start. Not worried, but I was wondering what the audience would be. I was worried it would be a bit too Nickelodeon-y. I wasn't sure, you know, how. But then they, once they've introduced some action, some additional characters, started exploring her power set and some of those things, I definitely was on board after the first couple. And I think it finds its feet after the first one or two. So I was very glad. And I'm really excited to get to the conclusion. So um, I'm, I'm, I've actually really, this has grown on me a lot more as it's gone on. And I think it's also due to the fact that Aman Vellani is a really great Kamala Khan. I think she's a fantastic um, actress. She's rapidly mastered the fight choreography, the, su- yeah. the superhero landings, and, and as, as quickly as the character actually has. But, we hey, we got some training montages. So, And I like that because I think, we don't have time in a six-episode series to, to be too faithful to her learning her powers. We got enough of a training montage. Let's just see her kick and butt. So I was all right with that, even though it was a bit fast-tracked. <laughs> well, look, she obviously can dance, that's and that's true. always a good start for a superhero. She's coordinated. She's coordinated. Yep. Uh, and she's little too, so she would be harder to hit. Spry. Yes, spying and harder to hit too yep, in terms yep. of this. and. I thought that she mastered the the quippery very quickly. Mm. Yeah, you know, and she's got an incredibly expressive face, and this is highly important for this character because she's a bit laconic and a bit she's mm. a smart ass basically. And, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Her mother's um, pain, chagrin, is <laughs> always kind of battling each other, but in a loving way. Yeah, don't give anyone any trouble, Kamala. No. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, Ms. Marvel. It's on mm-hmm. Disney Plus now. There are six episodes in all. Not all of them have landed yet, but they will. Yes, very soon. Inevitably. It's a really warm series. And, you know, before you even finish watching it, you'll be into the uh, the Thor Love and Thunder movie. They don't they, – they plan this. They plan it well. Yeah. No coincidence. <laughs> Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. <laughs> Corey McAbee. That's entirely appropriate for what we're talking about next. <laughs> yes, so we are now going to take a little look at the latest Rowan Atkinson-led and produced vehicle called Man vs. B, which is a new Netflix series. And so I'm actually um, visiting my dad at the moment and I had, Rob had thought we could cover this today and I said, oh, yep, hopefully we'll, I'll have time to check it out. Anyway, uh, arrived, helped set up my dad's internet. 
<laughs> helped him set up the smart TV, got Netflix up and running, clicking through, save, showing how to save things to the list. And he picked out Man vs. B and said, let's watch this. So it was all fate. And I was destined to watch um, this very B-led uh, comedy ridiculous I it's not what would you call this I mean it's such a, a specific kind of Rowan Atkinson comedy in a way um okay so kind of a yeah comedy of errors comedy with an insect <laughs> yeah just ridiculous stuff but yeah Man vs B it's on Netflix now it is a nine uh, episode mini series but each episode you might wonder how long can they stretch this premise look it's not far each episode's like 10 minutes so it it flows actually quite nicely. Each chapter, just you keep on going and going. And so really it's just a one and a half hour movie, <laughs> but um, split into these little comedy chapters led by Rowan Atkinson. And it is a British um, miniseries. And so it was created and written by Rowan Atkinson and William Davies. And um, all of the episodes were directed by David Kerr. And so, yeah, I mean, what's the premise? Well, there's a house in the English <laughs> countryside, escape from the country style, or perhaps mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what's those, that other one, you know, designing houses? Very parasite house as well, yeah, but like English yeah. parasite house. Yeah. Yes, where the house is its own character it's a, in this as well. It's a remarkable glass castle. It's ultra modern, yeah. Yeah. totally clever, clever house full of smart gadgets, Wi-Fi widgets and digital lackeys. It's filled with a considerably cashy collection of objects to art. It's ceramics, paintings, sculptures, even an illuminated medieval manuscript. Oh, and a, a classic Jaguar sports car. So, mm-hmm. you know, it is really swish. It's, a, yeah. it's global financier owners go off on holiday, leaving Trevor Bingley, a.k.a. Rowan Atkinson, mm-hmm. in charge from a house sitter hire company. Well, there's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> the show begins with him arraigned in court, so you know it's not going to end well. Yeah, we know from the start that this is a bit of a doomed misadventure, but we're here for the ride. <laughs> so we've got a premise. It's not unlike Peter Sellers arriving for the party in Blake Edwards' film. It's got that kind of vibe to it. Ominous. Mm. Ominous comedy vibe. Now, look, I've been watching Rowan Atkinson since he was in, oh, God, in Black Adder and and then his Mm. his long stint as Mr Bean, uh, you know, movies as well as um, animated and TV shows. and uh, Johnny English when he's playing, like, the spy. That's right, yeah. I first saw him in Not the Nine O'Clock News back in the late 70s where he had – (laughs) <laughs> it's not exactly similar characters, but of course he was in uh, Never Say Never Again with uh, Bond and uh, he had voice acting in The Lion King and just so many other things that mm. just think, this, is a, this is a guy who knows what he's doing. Uh, and yeah. I actually did see him recently more in a role that's uh, kind of in your neck of the woods in uh, May Gray, Inspector... Um, Magra in uh, playing that the, the, the titular character in the French series. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's been a lot of things, and here he is back in his basically physical comedy mode. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, this is not Bean versus B, 
So there actually is lots of dialogue Mm-mm-mm. in it. And there is a, a bee that gets into this household while he's there looking after it and creates havoc. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's the premise. Yeah. But they, and the setup is brilliant. There's, you know, as the, he arrives and they're showing the house and they, they drop the breadcrumbs of can't let this happen because it will have this result. Can't do that. This will happen. The dog can't do this. Dog can't, this thing, lock thing. You know, you can see the cogs, exactly how this thing's going to play out and you're powerless to stop it <laughs> as, as what you suspected ensues in the most wacky, yeah, bee hunting scenarios yeah. that you could possibly think of. As, as Dr. Eva would say, and the best part of this plan is no one can stop me. And that's actually the inevitability of it that, is part of the charm of it. Mm. There's also some pathos in it. Uh, Trevor, he's not very good at holding down a job. In fact, he's new at the house sitting role on account of being accident prone and obsessive, which yeah. you would think would immediately disqualify him from being a house sitter. I know. I mean, look, he's not, he's not, he's sitting in my house, but you, it's interesting that they bring some extra layers of backstory, contemplative moments where he does pause and say, Oh, what have I just done? I thought that was quite interesting for something that's a pretty superficial show. There were a couple of crumbs where I was like, I think this man needs to get professional help and I feel quite bad for him. He's he's divorced from his wife and really trying to accomplish a bit of a seaside holiday with his daughter. And, you know, so there's there are issues there as well. Now, there's another animal in the mix. I mean, you know, apart from the bee, uh, there's a precious pup with dietary problems called Cupcake. Yes. So that's cupcake. So you've got to have something in the house, you know, to, to help move things along. Look, some of the gags are cumulative. The only way that uh, Trevor can get cupboards and drawers open in this smart house is to sit or stand with his back to them and whack them with the back of his hand. So, you know, he's going to have to do that a lot. So you get these like layers. Yeah. Of gags. Well, it's it's he he scratches his head. It's this certain movement that he does, and then um, he's realised that does the trick. So he just keeps doing that. Which look, I get that. If you're in a familiar space, you do what you know works. And he accidentally destroyed the house manual with all the security codes in it. So the only way he can unlock things is to mimic the lady of the house's voice. So you know, there's this other thing that he has to do as well. The physical gags I thought were very well staged. I would expect that. Uh, for, yeah. for this guy who is basically kind of Jackie Chan without so much violence. <laughs> and there's frequent catastrophes that keep escalating as you go along. And, of course, in best Basil Faulty tradition, he tries to repair things and fix things and make it right and just keep yeah. up digging the hole deeper. I know. And that's – I'm like, he's really putting in effort to tidy up after these mishaps and <laughs> – <laughs> and you throw in some art burglars stealing to order off a list, which given how much damage has been done to the collection, isn't going to end well even without their interactions with our hero. Um, they're kind of underutilised actually and, and hardly last an episode. So I thought, well, you know, it's an excuse from sev- for several increasingly baffled visits from the police, you know, because when they open the door and Trevor is not what they expect to find in any way, shape or form. I will stress that no animals or insects were harmed in the production of this, but a lot of actual trauma was visited upon consenting actors. So <laughs> that is it. it. Look, it's just a bit of fun, really. Yeah, it's a pretty easy watch. You know what you're in for. It is him returning to his roots, I think, of what he does best and what he's probably most well known for. And 
he's just so good at it. He, I mean, this is why he's built a, a name around being this comedy with heart. Uh, I remember watching a lot of Mr. Bean, like at school, if we didn't have class for some reason, they'd just put on Mr. Bean. So I watched a lot of Mr. Bean <laughs> in high school. Is that what they did? I don't know why. Yeah, because I think that was just like the approved thing you could show kids, uh, like a mystic, harmless Mr. Bean. But I remember always being taking it a bit too seriously because I'm overly empathetic. And when he's like mailing himself Christmas cards, I'd be like, he's so alone. I feel so bad for him. But, you know, I think he's... In, you know, so many of us have um, such a warm feeling towards Rowan Atkinson's comedy, and I think this is him doing it in this new Netflix streaming age. Get this series out, and I think it it captures that same mm. that same um, mm. vibe. The two other actors in there, I wanted to shout out uh, Julian mm. Julian Alistair Rind Tut, mm-hmm. and we've seen him playing Prince Quartus in Stardust. Remember that Neil Gaiman oh. adaptation. And Ying Lucy, a British actress, uh, we know her from Crazy Rich Asians. I recognised her immediately. Yeah, I was yeah. like, she's the lawyer from Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> but I also know her from a weird little movie called The Malay Chronicles Bloodlines. <laughs> oh, okay, there you go. <laughs> Which is a, a strange one mixing... Um, Malay history with Chinese and also Roman, you know, that's so cool. that's why I know it because, you know, me being a, a romophile, mm-hmm, <laughs> which mm-hmm, sounds mm-hmm. like I like perfume and uh, essential oils, but <laughs> never mind. Um, so, yeah, you know, this is a, a, a good little gem. I wouldn't actually – well, you, you watched it binged all the way through. Does it work like that? Yeah, 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 I think it does. Look, it does reach a point where you go – oh, this is a lot of mishaps to watch happen. And because obviously the whole point is you see the setup each time. Yeah. Um, but I think it it's changed tack just enough. Uh, I think it worked pretty well, to be honest. We just kept it playing and, um, yeah, it was it was all right. Like I said, it's just kind of like a long movie. Ooh. Well, not a long movie, like a normal length movie, hour and a half. It also, what about you? It also, well, I was using it as a, an appetizer for longer mm. sessions, so it was kind of like watching the short cartoon. Yes. You know, so I enjoyed that. It, it's, Both work. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, this is called Man vs. Bee. It's on Netflix and it's mm-hmm. nine episodes. Buzzing by you right now. Very short, little bite-sized, little B-sized episode. Yeah. Hey, this is Craig Charles, Dave Listed off Red Dwarf. You're listening to Space Core Directive 3 Triple R FM. So smeg and get on with it. Lorne Balf there with the beginning the title theme from Man vs. B. <laughs> Very relentless there. It sets it up, doesn't it, musically speaking? Mm. All right, so we'll have a quick look now at Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi, which has got six episodes on Disney+. Plus. They've all dropped now. I've sorted out the timeline on this. <laughs> okay, Revenge of the Sith, the third of the prequel Star Wars movies. Kenobi is set ten years after that. Ten years, okay. Yeah, so in between that there's a whole bunch of other animated things and stuff, but uh, it doesn't matter. We're not concerned with those. And nine years before Star Wars A New Hope. Oh, so they're only meant to be like 19 or 20 in A New Hope. Yeah. Interesting. Hard years, obviously, on uh, Ewan McGregor to turn him into Alec Guinness. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, true. (laughs) And, of course, Star Wars A New Hope was the first of the original movies, and The Mandalorian is set nine years after that. 
Okay. So, after A New Hope? Yeah, or After A New yes. Hope. Okay. So it's like, yep. uh, what do we got? A couple of decades almost before. So mm. after. Yeah, there we go. I knew I'd get that wrong. Okay, look, in spite of some seriously good performances from Ewan McGregor as a somewhat um, post-traumatic stress-disordered Ben Kenobi, Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he actually blurts Le- Le- Princess Leia's name out to a squad of stormtroopers at one stage. He, he's <sighs> very befuddled to yeah. begin with. You know, I think they had really good performances in this. Don't get me wrong; they extracted maximum feels out of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hayden Christensen is 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 really good as Darth Vader. Although that said, it's really a composite character because although mm. Christensen primarily uh, portrays Vader, we've also got uh, an in-suit performer and a stunt performer and, of course, James Earl Jones reprises the voice of the character. Yeah. Which is really funny because they do a, a great um, neat trick switching between Christensen's voice and mm. James Earl Jones, which means that someone, probably the Emperor, chose that voice for Darth <laughs> Vader, like Siri, you know. Like yeah. there's a menu. <laughs> yeah, it's like, mm, British, American, which one are we going to go for? Well, you know, he's got to be British if he's a villain in a science fiction series, so we'll go for that. <laughs> Deep voice, James Earl Jones, yes, this is the one. Uh, anyway, I think they really blended that nicely. So, you know, this they're saying, like, it uh, restored our faith in the Star Wars universe. I don't know about mm. that. Um, you know, I'm still off course with that. And why does mm. Darth Vader's chest plate have readouts on it anyway? I mean, surely he's got a heads-up display in his helmet. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure you'd want people outside knowing what's up with your life support system if you're an evil yeah. overlord. I never really thought about that till now. Maybe it's psychological. You know, how is Lord Vader doing today? His red light's on. <laughs> <laughs> How's Lord Vader today? Red light day. Ooh, He's a grumpy day today. Stay back. It wouldn't actually be a very good idea to work for him. HR must have a field day. Oh, gosh. It's like, yeah, the SNL sketch they did of Kylo Ren when he was... Revolving door employment with the Dark Lord of the Sith. Next! <laughs> I think Vivian Lyra Blair is amazing as a young Leia Organa. Mm-hmm. And I never quite understand how come Vader doesn't twig to her being his daughter. Yeah, I mean, there's some. What was the force? I know he doesn't quite end up in the same room with her, but nevertheless, there should be. I mean, he doesn't. Yeah. Well, he, consider this: he he twigs pretty much immediately that Luke Skywalker is his son. Mm, well, I mean, yeah. So, Maybe, yeah, I don't know. yeah, and it doesn't, you know, that's a surprising thing there. So, you know, she's great, and and I wonder with the way that these things work, is that little girl going to be fated to play Princess Leia again when she gets older? You know, I don't know. Star Wars, I think they Star Wars sixty four. <laughs> She'll be played by Alec Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, there'll be action figures. and that. What a strange thing to get plugged into, you know. Uh, Moses Ingram, I thought, was great as uh, third sister Inquisitor Reva. Um, mm-hmm. In spite of her 
plot sort of being very muddled, I thought, the journey she went on. I mean, she was there mm. basically to avenge herself against Vader, but she had plenty of access to him before this whole thing. Yeah. You know, what What the heck? Why not just put some, um, I don't know, some bleach into his meditation chamber, his back to tank? You know, I is that a thing? <laughs> you came up with that pretty quick, Robert. I've been meditating upon Vader's fate <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. I liked uh, um, the uh, street-level con artist who was pretending to be a Jedi. That was a really nice touch yeah. with uh, Kamal Nanjianji playing the role. And yeah, he's great. I also thought Indira Varma playing that uh, imperial officer who was a bit of a turncoat. Um, that was the actress who played Susie Costello in uh, Torchwood. And I recognised her. Oh. oh, I know her. And I, it's one of those ones I haven't seen in a while. So mm. I figure that out. But, yeah, she did great. Unfortunately, this is one of those roles that um, doesn't last. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> because if you are appearing in a story where you are basically having to uh, have everybody armoured by plot continuity, all of the main players like Vader and Leia and Kenobi, they cannot die. So watch out everybody else. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. And wasn't it great to see um, uh, Tamura Morrison um, pop up just as a homeless veteran clone soldier? <laughs> That is actually entirely logical. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, we had cameos from uh, Liam Neeson and uh, and uh, Ian uh, McDermott playing the Emperor. We expected that kind of thing there. It was not yeah. nice to see all, yeah. all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I know, you know, like I said, all the feels for this show, mm-hmm. in spite of the fact that I'm really quite bored by the whole core Skywalker saga thing, which is why I took, I think, to The Mandalorian so much. That, yeah. That and the fact that it involved a character who wore armour for the whole series, you know. <laughs> but I think they're learning they should veer into some new stories in the Star Wars universe, which I think is the plan. The other thing that really honked me off, that kept hovering overhead, so to speak, where the hell is their well-known combat air control or any aerial support whatsoever? You know, it's smaller, mm. faster craft, frigates, TIE fighters and so on. A lot of convenient omissions, I think. At one one stage they had to choose which group of insurgents to go after when they split up. They shouldn't Mm. have had to choose. We just say, well, we'll send the Star Destroyer off that We'll send a frigate off that and, you know, 16 TIE fighters. It shouldn't have been a choice. It's just good operations, yeah. Yeah, so when when you fall apart on the procedural in Star Wars, which they do frequently, Mm. Although I will say that the uh, lack of safety railings is actually a design decision. They said, yeah. the Empire does not do OH&S. Just right out, not at all. <laughs> so, you know, that does bug me. And, then, of course, that continuity armour which kept everybody alive. And and it, it led to some odd things in the plot like, you know, okay, Vader's weakness is he must kill Obi-Wan with his own hands. Mm. This is his own mechanical prosthesis. And he's always late. Vader's always late to these things. <laughs> you know? And Obi-Wan, of course, cannot kill Vader, uh, mm. even though he would save billions of people on Alderaan. Imagine that, well... imagine that conversation later on with Leia. Mm. You know, they're sitting there in the Millennium Falcon having busted her out of the prison 
So actually, no, they can't do that because Obi-Wan gets killed before he can have much of a conversation. Well, there you go. Exactly. Anything with Leia, but still. So good thing they pretend they don't know each other. Well, you know, they seem to have interplanetary communications quite interstellar communications at the drop of a, of a communications pod. So why, you know, at some stage we'd say, well, you know, if you kill Vader that day, you know, of course it's all in the future, so we don't feel worried about it. We can't. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. And I thought I'd uh, end with another track, another playing of the David Bowie classic Rebel Rebel. Again, another cover version. We played, uh, I think, you know, we played um, uh, Sir George's ones from Life Aquatic. We played Mm -hmm. recently um, Joan Jett's one. And now we're going to play the Bay City Rollers. (laughs) Oh, I've never heard this. I I am intrigued. And I'm riffing off this David Bowie and Star Wars because once Mark Hamill said that when he was filming uh, Star Wars in 1976, he got inside of a, a lizard outside the famous cantina. So, you know, uh, and, and he said there's a, because it's on the set, you know, so there, there was a crowbar to lift its head and it was covered in newspaper paper mache on the inside because it was a cool. prop. And on the newspaper, he found a review of a David Bowie concert in Paris. So he read that by flashlight. <laughs> so, so Mark Hamill posted this on Twitter saying, you know, it was a rave review. So, I don't know what songs were, because there's a couple of Paris concerts about that time, but Rebel mm. Rebel coming out in 74, so we must hope. It was in- included. But, you know, it's about Rebels, so it's Star Wars. It's anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's about it for Zero G for today. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.